got a question to kick off with this morning. Um, question that was put to us at a conference a few weeks back, and um, I know you're all shy, so I've got what we call some incentivizing items. Some people call them bribes, but I'm a Christian, so it's an incentivizing item. It's really tasty. So this lady put the question to us. If you could look back over uh, the Gospels and, and the, the life of Jesus, what would be the highlights for you? What are the most exciting stories or fascinating parts of Jesus' life? Anyone? You've got to put your hand up and you get chocolate. Whitaker's, not Cadbury, because that's sinful. <laughs> Anyone? First one goes to me. Okay, feeding of the 5,000. I can keep going. I have, I have the lot, so anyone else? Any interesting, fascinating stories? What are your favorite ones? There's no wrong answers. Sorry, the walking on the water. Can we pass that back? That's an awesome one. Cool, well done. Any, any others? Uh, so I've got two here. There was Zacchaeus, awesome, and there was one at the back. Charlotte? Yeah. What was it? I... Yeah, that's, that's an all. I love that one. Okay, can we get this back? I've got, got one more. I was waiting for this, seriously. So many ladies out there are not being honest today. Turning water into wine, seriously. Who doesn't love that? That's pretty cool. Good man. Most honest guy in the room. Another one that is always on the, the highlight list, uh, I just love it, is, um, is raising Lazarus from the dead. How cool is that? Not just because it's an incredible miracle, but just because of the personal beauty of it, you know, the impact on that family. And the passage I want to look at this morning follows on from raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is raised in John chapter 11. So I'd love you to grab your Bibles or turn them on, turn there with me. And then we're going to look today at the, the follow-on from that and, and a beautiful event that happened. So turn with me to, to John chapter 11. interesting thing about the raising of Lazarus from the dead is that Jesus didn't turn up. He heard that Lazarus was sick, heard that Lazarus was dying, but he delayed going to him, even though this was a friend of his who he loved. He delayed going, and so he didn't turn up until Lazarus had actually been dead for four days. And if you have a look at verse in John chapter 11 and verse 21, Martha, who is one of Lazarus's sisters, said this, Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary, her sister, says exactly the same thing further on in the chapter. And in response to this, Jesus says these amazing words. And, and just as you read this, just ask yourself, who, who talks like this? Look at what Jesus says in verse 25 of John chapter 11. Jesus says to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Who, who talks like that? No one in a sane mind talks like this. But just to show that he could, just to back this up, Jesus goes on and he says, okay, take me to the tomb. It was a kind of a cave cut out 
in, in a wall and, and there was a, a, a stone rolled over it and he says, pull the stone away. And Martha says, can't do that, it'll stink. He's been in there four days, you know, evidencing the fact that this was a genuine physical death, not just, you know, it wasn't, he just hadn't sinned and been cast aside like a spiritualized thing. He was genuinely dead. His sister's saying, you can't even open the tomb, it'll stink. And so Jesus just goes forward and he just says, Lazarus, come out. And just with those words, Lazarus comes out still wrapped in his burial clothes. An incredible miracle. And there's two amazing responses to this. The first one is that it's just, it's just so mind-blowing that a whole lot of Jews believe. Jews who hadn't believed previously, but they hear the words of this man, words that no one else would say, backed up by a miracle that no one else could do, and so they believe. And then there's another response. And if you look in John chapter 11, at the response of the Jewish leaders, the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Look at verse 53. This crystallized their thinking as to what a threat Jesus was. And in verse 53, they read, So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Their traditions, their, their traditions that they have, their own lists of rules are outweighing the beautiful words, the life, world-transforming words that this man is saying. And they plot to kill him rather than accept him in, in spite of all the evidence that he's giving. And then we see down in verse 57, but the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So this is the, this is the background to John chapter 12 that we're just about to go into. This cauldron of fear. You try and imagine the pressure. Try and imagine being one of Jesus' disciples. The word is out. There is a reward money for anyone who will hand over Jesus. And his disciples are thinking, well, what are they going to do to us? We are enemies of the state. We are this small rabble of men following this guy that there's a death penalty on. What are we to do? That's the, the cauldron that the situation is now. And then we come to John chapter 12, and right in the middle of this, this pressure cooker, we see one of the most beautiful acts of love that is ever offered to Jesus in all of the Gospels. If you'd read with me from John chapter 12 and verse 1, it says the six days before the Passover. So the Passover was a feast that Jesus has been celebrating. We've been reading in our teaching over the last few weeks, Jesus is having a meal that's the Passover meal that he's about to celebrate. So six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So here's the setting. It's in Bethany. Bethany is a small town about three kilometers outside Jerusalem. You could walk from Bethany to Jerusalem in well less than an hour. And the other accounts of this event are recorded in, in Matthew and Mark, and they flesh out some of the details. And the first interesting one is that they tell us it's held in the house of a man called Simon the leper. And that's really interesting, because no one would go and have dinner with a leper because they were unclean and they were religiously impure. There was no way you would eat in his house. So quite clearly, Simon the leper 
was really Simon the ex-leper, or no one would have been there. And given that there was no known cure for leprosy in this day, Simon the ex-leper had clearly been miraculously healed by Jesus, who went around doing exactly that. And so you have this beautiful picture of this man who used to have no friends at his table because no one wanted to go near him, who was now accepted and loved and surrounded by friends because Jesus accepted and loved him and was willing to touch him and heal him. So Simon the ex-leper is holding a dinner in honor of Jesus. And we read that Lazarus is there. How grateful is Lazarus? Jesus raised him from the dead. And we also read about Martha, one of Lazarus's sisters. It says that Martha served. And this is pretty normal for her. The first time we're introduced to, to Martha and to Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, is back in Luke chapter 10. Now Martha, her name it comes from Aramaic, which means like the, the mistress or hostess of the house. Uh, she is the chief in charge of the, the food list and the wine list and where people are going to sit. And she's in the kitchen and she's organizing everything and she's making sure that the flowers are there. Her last name could have actually been Stuart. We're not too sure about that. But she is the one who, who when it comes to the love language, acts of service is totally at the top of her list. In contrast, back in Luke 10 when they're introduced, Martha, she's flat out in the kitchen. Mary is not like her sister Martha. She's said to be sitting at Jesus' feet. And she stays there to the point where it actually causes some conflict. Because Martha, she's busy serving. And there's a crowd of people. Jesus doesn't turn up by himself. He brings 12 guys and their followers on. And you can start to get the picture, those of you who serve a lot and spend time in the kitchen. You know Martha's out there. And uh, she's getting into the falafels and the hummus and, and no Mary. As usual, there is no Mary. But that's all right. So Martha does the helpful thing and she just puts the plates down on the bench a little bit, a little bit more volumes just to help Mary understand that you know, after the pleasantries, there's work to be done in the kitchen. But the plate trick doesn't work. So the cupboard door enthusiastically closed trick comes into play. And the volume, you can just imagine this, and Martha's head is starting to increase as crockery starts to get randomly thrown around the kitchen. The noise needs clearly to increase because Mary's still sitting out there at Jesus' feet and the noise in Martha's head and the thoughts going on like Pharaoh freed all of the Israelite slaves. Good one, except one who's still right here in the kitchen, you know, and she is ticked. And in response to that, Mary stays out sitting at Jesus' feet. And what's so fascinating about Luke 10, without doing a full exposition of that, is that Jesus defends Mary. And it's not that Jesus was anti-service, not that he was uh, right into doing nothing. It's just that the wording that's used to say that Mary sat at Jesus' feet indicated much more than physical proximity. Paul uses the same wording when he, the Apostle Paul describes how he was brought up. In Acts 22, he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, and your Bibles will say, trained under Gamaliel. What the Greek actually says, at the feet of Gamaliel. 
means that Paul had chosen Gamaliel, the great Jewish teacher, to be his rabbi, to be his mentor. And so when Jesus defends Mary, it's most likely that it's because Mary had chosen Jesus to be her rabbi, to be the one she wanted to follow. She wanted to sit at his feet and learn from him. And because we see this on more than one occasion, that seems to be the situation. This lady who has this amazing servant-hearted sister Martha, but Mary is the one who has much more of a tender heart and she has this relationship focus on Jesus. And so we get to John chapter 12, and again, Martha's in the kitchen. She's doing the awesome things that she does. We read, though, something really beautiful that Mary does. You look at verse 3, it says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's not just an act to make Jesus smell nice. This was a lady who understood what's going on in the world around them. She, she knew the fear. She knew the, the blood, the money that had been put out as a reward for Jesus. She knows that he is ready to give his life for these people, for the nation. I love the way that Max Lucado puts this. He writes it like this. He says, She, Mary, was the only one who believed him. Whenever he spoke of his death, the others shrugged or doubted, but Mary believed. Mary believed because he spoke with a firmness she'd heard before. Lazarus, come out! He demanded, and her brother came out. After four days in a stone-sealed grave, he walked out. And as Mary kissed the now warm hands of her just dead brother, she turned and looked. Tear streaks were dry and the teeth shone from beneath the beard. Jesus was smiling. And in her heart, she knew she would never doubt his words. So when he spoke of his death, she believed. Now's the right time, she told herself. It wasn't an act of impulse. She'd carried the large vial of perfume from her house to Simon's. It wasn't a spontaneous gesture, but it was an extravagant one. The perfume was worth a year's wages, maybe the only thing of value she had. It wasn't a logical thing to do, but since when has love been led by logic? And now someone needed to show the same to the giver of such love. So Mary did. She stepped up behind him. And stood with the jar in her hand, she began to pour over his head, over his shoulders, down his back, over his feet. She would have poured herself out for him if she could. The fragrance of the sweet ointment rushed through the room. Wherever you go, the gesture spoke. Breathe the aroma and remember one who cares. The perfume that she poured out on Jesus called nard or spike nard. It comes from a plant called nard, which is only found up in the Himalayas. So it's not a common plant. And in a day where they didn't have a banking system like what we do, people would sometimes use perfume as a way, perfume like this as a way of storing wealth, like people might do today with precious artworks or gold bullion or even investment wine. 
And people in that day could sometimes store up their wealth in perfume because it was portable, it lasted. And we read that this was worth a year's wages. But it wasn't just the monetary value of the perfume that she put on Jesus. And it wasn't like Chanel number no. 5, which would be horrible if it was tipped over your whole body. This was an anointing perfume. This would, he would smell beautiful and you could put as much on as you liked. But it was more than just that physical act and, and the price of what it was worth. She doesn't just take the little vial and kind of hand it over and say, hope you like it. She's the one who anoints him. She doesn't leave it to a servant to do. If you remember the last couple of weeks and we've looked at Jesus washing his disciples' feet and the idea that that was just a role for the lowest servant. But she anoints his feet. And then in a culture where it was considered improper for a woman to let her hair down, she gladly lets her hair down and she uses it to dry his feet. It's just an amazingly beautiful, extravagant act of love from someone who recognized who was sitting at the table in Simon the leper's house. Love the words that Philip Keller says to describe what happens. He says this, he says, The delicious fragrance ran down over his shining hair. It enfolded his body with its delightful aroma. Wherever he moved during the ensuing days, the perfume would go with him into the Passover, into the Garden of Gethsemane, into Herod's Hall, into Pilate's patio, even into the cruel hands of those who cast lots for his clothing. Both Matthew and Mark's accounts of what happened here Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. And Jesus says, that this is, he's just so taken by what Mary had done that he says, Whenever, wherever the gospel is preached in the world, this story is going to be told in memory of her. What an amazing thing. Jesus is so taken, so enamored by this extravagant act of love. And so it comes as almost a shock to read the next verses where we see someone raise an objection to this, that it's a bad thing. Look at what we read in verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And at face value, this seems... I suppose like a reasonable question to ask. So picture this, they've traveled with this man, Jesus, for three years. So much of his teaching, so much of the demonstration of his life has been about a heart for the poor, a heart for the less fortunate. And so as the, the, the treasurer, the, the money keeper of the group, it might have made sense for Judas to say, look, that's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of money. We could have, you know traded that in for a bit of cheap red door or something and still had heaps left over to give to the poor. How many mouths could we feed? How many families could we have helped with this? And he wasn't alone because Matthew and Mark's accounts say that it was the other disciples joined him. And then John points out something really interesting. John says in verse 6 that Judas, he did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. 
These are just dark verses. Try and picture the contrast here, this incredibly beautiful act that's just been done, this extravagant act of love that Jesus says will be spoken about for the rest of history. And then Judas, who has lived for three years hearing the teaching about loving the poor, hearing the teaching about honesty, hearing the teaching about being transparent before God, seeing the most beautiful life of any human being who has ever lived, knowing how little he deserved to be in that group of 12, experiencing that privilege, and through that time, he's pocketing money that followers of Jesus had given to help the poor. So this incredibly beautiful act of extravagant love is just so harshly contrasted with this act of selfish deceit. As dark as the verses are about what went on in the Garden of Gethsemane, these are just such dark verses. And what really stands out for me as an accountant, how quick is, is Judas to put a price on what she had done? When you read in, in your Bible that, she, uh, uh, that it was worth a year's wages, what the Greek actually says is it was 300 denarii, which was a small silver coin, one of the main currencies in the Roman Empire. I don't know if you can see this. Silver coin, the denarius, came to be widely known mainly because it was the going rate for a day's work. So you did a day and you would get your denarius and that would give you enough to feed your family and the next day you would be paid because most people lived from day to day. You didn't get paid once a week, once a month because you needed your denarius. And so a denarius, that little silver coin, was well known. And if you work six days a week, 50-odd weeks in the year, 300 denarii was the value of the perfume, this extravagant, beautiful gift. And Judas says it straight away. He does the numbers, crunches the maths, and he says, 300 denarii. What's with that? But this is the same guy who right about that time would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You start to get the contrast. You start to get what's going on in this guy's mind. The contrast between this beautiful act of love that Mary's shown and this horrible act of deceit that Judas has shown, the one that Jesus described as a devil. And so Jesus, the perfect leader, steps in. The one who never is caught off guard. The one who always has the, the words to say. The one who you will never read about being out of his depth. Steps in and he defends Mary. And he says in verse 7, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus defends her so beautifully. And what he does in this is, is he recognizes that this is not just to make him smell nice. He recognizes that he's about to die and there's an association, this anointing perfume. Just as when Jesus was first born, one of the first gifts he ever received in the gold and the frankincense was the myrrh which was an anointing, a lovely smelling spice that would anoint dead bodies. And so we get to John chapter 12, and he's anointed with nard. 
And there's this association that he recognizes. And it seems as well that Mary may well have recognized that he is about to give his life. He's quite willing to do that. And so it's this beautiful act of love. And a commentator, Randolph Tasker, talks about this. He puts it beautifully. And he says, I'm skimming through. He says, she knows he is ready and willing to die as a supreme act of love for his friends. And she rightly reckons herself and her family among those friends. And so she pours the fragrant perfume, her most costly possession, as though she were anointing a king. Her comparatively small act of sacrifice is, a symbolic, is symbolic of his much greater act of sacrifice. And she makes it to show that no gift is too great in response to such a love as his. This wasn't just to make Jesus smell nice. This was an act to recognize the sacrifice he was willing to make. To understand this, and I think for us to respond to it, there's two questions. The first one is, is, is the why question. Do we really, why did she do this? And she did it because she got who Jesus was. That's the why question. And the second one that we need to address is then the how question, which is, well, then how do you respond? As she responded with her extravagant gift of perfume. The first question is just the why question. Why would she do this? Why would she give up so much monetary value? Why would she debase herself to take the role of a servant, to let down her hair, to be looked upon the way people would have looked upon her that night? It's because she got it. She got Jesus. She not just understood, she really got who he was. In her day, she got that this guy who spoke the words that he did and who lived this incomprehensible, unparalleled life really was the one who had been promised, who would give sight to the blind, who would give hearing to the, to the deaf, who would raise the dead. Now, Cheryl, Cheryl shared so beautifully this morning, and so many of you, I expect pretty much all of you will know what it feels like, that sickening feeling of grief. And what a horrible thing it is to cry. It just stings your eyes. Just grief is such a horrible thing. And when someone that we love dies, we just have this hope to cling to. And it's a certain hope. We know it's based on good evidence. But how much more did Mary have? She had her brother to cling to who had been dead. And because of Jesus, she could hug her brother at this meal at Simon the ex-leper's house. She could look across the table and see her brother Lazarus laughing. And so she got it. She knew that this, that this man Jesus was the Messiah. She really, really got it. I want to read you an excerpt from, from a book by Bono. Bono out of you too. And this is not because Bono is, is a theologian, because he's got it all together, but it's because I think he, what he says here shows that he, start, he gets it. Bono, many of you will know if you are children of the 80s. So this book, which is kind of like an interview um, with Mitchka Esaias, runs like this. Mitchka Esaias, it doesn't sound like a believer, says this, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers. Yeah, but son of God... Isn't that far-fetched? I love the way Bono responds. Listen to this. No, it's not far-fetched to me. 
The secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're, you're a bit eccentric, but we've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word, Messiah, because, you know, if you do, we're going to have to crucify you. And Jesus goes, no, no, I am the Messiah. And at this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase for me, that's far-fetched. And again, I don't put that up because Bono is a, an amazing theologian put that up because what he's saying is so true. This guy who has so much influence. Oh, that the world would hear those words. Because Jesus wasn't just another great teacher. Not just another great religious leader. Because the other great religious leaders never made the claims that Jesus did. And my question is, man, do I really get that? Do I really get who this guy was? If that's you this morning, and if you are struggling to understand that, firstly. Can I encourage you? Talk to someone you know who you think does really get it and ask them why. Pick up the Bible. You don't, even, you don't necessarily have to read the whole thing, but just read the four Gospels, these biographies about Jesus that talk about his life. And when you read it, ask yourself, does anyone else talk like this? Does anyone else do this stuff? And don't be scared to pray. One of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible is by a guy, a father whose son Jesus had cured. And the father is told by Jesus, everything's possible for him who believes. And the father says this beautiful thing. He says, Jesus, he says, look, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. All of us can pray that prayer. I think we believe, there's that seed, but we've all got confusion. What a great prayer for us to pray, to, to start to get it. I believe, but Lord, help me with my unbelief. To understand it is, is the first thing. To accept it and embrace it is the second thing. And maybe we just think we've screwed up too badly. Maybe we've drifted away too far. Well, if, if that's where you think you're at, there's no one more safe to come back to and say, Lord, I've, I have drifted too far. I've really screwed up. Would you just help me to get back to where I'm meant to be? Would you just take me back and forgive me? Because he will always do that. That is his number one promise. And lastly, when we kind of get it, how do we keep it? How do we keep him? 
the real Jesus in the front of our mind because there's this battle going on and there's this world where we're just bombarded by a tsunami of information and there's just so much entertainment and there's so much to do and we're sprinting so fast and we're climbing so high and making so much and there's so many things to do and it's exactly what the enemy would love us to have, a tsunami of information just crowding Jesus out from our lives. And I would... I'm not wanting to judge anyone, but I would imagine that there are so many, not just Kiwis, but I think there are so many Christians in New Zealand who would know far more about the Kardashian family than about Jesus, or about their favorite sports hero than about Jesus. And having Jesus in the front of your mind doesn't tend to happen by accident. Really getting who he is and living that out doesn't really happen by accident. We've got to work at that. We need to have that discipline, which is why he says, get your face in this book that I've made sure is there about me. Spend time with other Christian people who will encourage you and remind you about me. But make sure you keep me in the front of your minds. Mary got it. It was easier for her because she had Jesus sitting at her table, but she really got it. She got the why. Why would you respond to him with such extravagance? That's the first question. The second one is how. When we do get it, how do we respond? And we might sit here this morning and say, well, it's kind of easy for her. She's got Nard and she's got Jesus sitting at her table. I don't have either of those things. But without wanting to sound kind of corny, we all do have a perfume that we can offer. And they may be really big things, or they may be smaller things that are still beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. I went to a, before we came here, we went to a church that was in a much lower socioeconomic area, and we wanted to build a new building. Uh, and in a Poorer area, that's a really hard thing to do. Still in Auckland, real estate does not come cheaply. And one of the reasons that we got there was that a retiree sold a mortgage-free rental property and just gave all of the money to the elders. Amazing sacrifice. What an amazing thing to give up late in your life when you could probably do with all the denarii that you can get your hands on. That was his perfume. I had a middle-aged man who sat at my table just this last week who talked about leaving his well-respected, well-paid job to go into ministry. And he said he's on the minimum wage. And he's a husband and a dad. So his comment was, which I thought was quite subtle, he said, we've had to readjust our spending. Well, you would on 17 bucks 50 an hour. And it doesn't just have to be monetary, the, the perfume that you offer back. There are people who turn up here on a Sunday morning and when they sing, they don't just sing, they worship. It's like they're already standing next to angels. And there are people who come here and when they pray, it's like they are already standing at the throne of God. And it's not just words for them, this is worship and it's their perfume. Friday night, I'm finishing my week and I'm completely, I'm just, I'm knackered. But we've got people in this church who at the end of their hard weeks as well will get out there and sprint around with our teenagers because they just long for them to hear the truth about Jesus, to see that reflected the love of God. We've got people in this church who are just so long-suffering, who, who put up with different things. There are Christians who you know who have forgiven 
genuine hurts, even from other people inside the church family. There are people in this church who are, who are working so hard to cross language and cultural barriers so that they might be able to reach their neighbours with the love of God. There are so many ways to offer perfume. All of us have them. What is yours? What is your perfume? If you really get it, who Jesus is, what is the perfume you can offer him? However extravagant it might be. doesn't mean it has to be crazy. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to build another ark, can I suggest talk to someone, a wise Christian person, and just double-check that your amazingly extravagant, lavish gift of love is the will of God, you know? But all of us have some perfume to offer. About 14, 15 years ago, there was a guy I used to have a prayer breakfast with, and we had a discussion about this very thing, and just, just sat there, just thinking about who Jesus was. And the words we used were, man, if you, if you really get it, how can you not go nuts? Just go nuts for Jesus. And when I write to him, I still sign off some of my emails. Go nuts. And he went into ministry as a result of that. He, he left the world, a high, you know, the world of the platinum card and the gold card, entered the world of the community services card, but he's in ministry and he's done just amazing things for years and years. And I would imagine that just like the people at the table may have looked at Mary, his workmates looked at him and thought he really was going nuts. But that's what perfume can look like. And so I just want to ask you, do you really get it? Do you really get who this guy is, who we talk about? who really is the saviour of the world, whose, whose words put him in that place where he has power over every life and over death, power over us because we belong to him. And if we really get it, what's our perfume back to him going to be? What are we going to offer him? What's our extravagant gifts of love going to be for him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're just... You're so difficult to take in. You're so beautiful. You're so brilliant. You're so powerful. You've changed human history like no one else ever has or ever could. You are just so infinitely above us. You are adored and worshipped by angels, and we owe everything we are to you. Our very being, our, our existence is in your hands. And we only have hope because of you, because of who you are and what you've done for us. We are yours, and this is the greatest privilege any of us could ever have. Uh, but we're also fickle, and we want to love you back, but we, are, we can be so lukewarm. Would you please help us to get you, to really understand you and to accept you and embrace you? And would you please help us? Help us to look at our lives and just recognize how can we respond to you with beauty, with compassion, with conviction, with honesty, because that's what we want to do, because there's nothing we can offer you that is too great. No perfume we could give you that is too beautiful, because you deserve it all. So again, thank you, Lord Jesus. Please help us, because we so need you.